Small businesses are at the heart of the U.S. economy. Here at Nurture Small Business Podcast, we're dedicated to seeing our small business owners succeed. I am your host, Denise Kagan, president of DCA Virtual Business Support. If you like what you hear on today's podcast, please share it. You have my gratitude for doing so. When it comes to organizational change, it's the same journey, whether it's a multi-billion dollar company or a $6 million company. That's what our guest says today. It's a matter of scale and really boils down to the people. Welcome to the show, Brian Gorman. Thank you, Denise. I'm excited to be here. So, Brian, tell me, you your business is called Transforming Lives. Is that correct, coaching? Transform- Transforming Lives. Transforminglives.coach. Dot coach. Okay, perfect. Thank you. That was my mistake. I should have clarified that. <laughs> Not a problem. But I also saw on your bio that you're, uh, you've been writing for the Forbes Council. You've been a TEDx speaker, and you have a book out called Enlightened Leadership. So where would you like to start in on this? Because those are pretty important things in my eyes. The book is actually in writing now. Okay. Hoping to get it out by the end of this year. Okay. I think I'd like to start with your introduction. <laughs> okay. And, and come back to a little bit of my history which is over four decades in organizational change management Mm -hmm. as a profession. And one of the more important things I learned in that four decades is organizational change management is a misnomer. Organization, because organizations (laughs) don't change. People change. Okay. And as people change, they change their organizations. As people change, they change their societies. As people change, they change their relationships. So you're saying that the change starts with the people, not the organization. Absolutely. Absolutely. So give me a practical example of that. Right now, the research says 70% of organizational change initiatives fail. A few of them fail because the wrong technology was chosen or um, the wrong marketplace trend was predicted, so forth. The vast majority fail because the people in the organization fail to make the change. Why? Any number of reasons. It could be that I've spent my career building my department, my processes. I control all of the data we produce, which gives me a great point of leverage in the organization. And now you're bringing in some mega system where everything is going to get centralized. I have to let go of my processes. I have to let go of maybe some of my people, and I have to let go of my power. Power and pride. Yeah. Pride was what popped into my head. Ownership over the things they've created. Yeah. yeah. One of the things that we fail to do most often with organizational change is allow for that grieving that has Mm -hmm. to happen because people have to let go of something, even in our personal life. You know, if, if we're entering a new relationship, there's a letting go of what it meant to live alone and the freedom that that gave us and so forth and so on. So every change brings with it some letting go and that letting go can be a cause of grief, but we tend to approach organizational change as if it's emotionless and it's not, it's people and we have emotions. We've got lots of emotions. (laughs) You know, it's interesting because we are in the midst of a change right now, a, a key team member 
um, who, who's switching to another position. And, you know, after we discussed it a couple of times, I was like, so how do you feel about this? And the interesting thing is they expressed two emotions. And this is how they said it, a weird sense of shame and relief. And the shame came about because what their original goal was, they weren't able to hit it, but they were relieved because they knew the new position is better suited for their life. We need to listen to people's intuition. People typically end up in jobs that intuitively they believe they're going to fit. And when they do, and we start changing what that job is about, we're changing their fit. Mm -hmm. And so we really need to pay to that intuitive side of people as well. And I think that's exactly where we found ourselves as we grow, that the needs of the company are changing and that brought about that particular transformation. So I know when we talked originally, you said you guided Merck through a change. Merck is a big, big company. I didn't do it alone. Of course, but (laughs) talk to me about your experience there. (laughs) I was on that team and the methodology that we used was a very scaled up version of the methodology or the approach that I bring to any transformational change, whether it's an individual client, uh, I've got working with a client now, moving out of college administration into coaching, big transformation, or whether it's a, a company as large as Merck. And it goes back again to your introduction when I talk about all changes the same. The catalysts are infinite. The ways that we respond to the disruption of the change and the different adjustments that we have to make are predictable. The journey itself is always the same. Joseph Campbell called it the hero's journey. It's the basis of every myth, which is where Campbell really discovered it. It's the basis for great movies, great books, great plays. What Campbell said, and what I found to be true in in my decades of experience, is while we approach each change as if it's unique and unpredictable, it's not. We take the same journey over and over and over again. Hmm. Can you go into depth a little bit more on that? Sure. We begin by saying there's a destination. I have created my version, and and that's what I'll talk about a little bit here. Um, When I work with my clients, the destination I'm seeking is the destination that makes their heart sing. What feeds their passion? If they can tell me that, then we begin to create a story from the future, not a story about the future. The human brain treats story the same as the lived event. So a story about the future, and I'll give you an example of an individual client, but you can imagine this in any sort of business setting. A client who in her 50s was laid off, she and her husband decided they were going to retire and move to Costa Rica by the time they reached 60. So they gave themselves a five-year window. So if we start planning that change, it might be second marriage for both of us. So we're going to have to sell two houses in the middle of a housing downturn. We're going to have to learn Spanish. We're going to have to get rid of most of our stuff. We're going to have to change the way we relate to our children and our grandchildren. Maybe we should move to Florida. <laughs> her story began, I can't believe we did that. We woke up this morning with the Pacific breeze blowing through our windows, the chatter of Spanish down the streets. We moved to Costa Rica. We had to sell two houses. We had to learn Spanish, so forth and so on. It's a different story. That story begins to build new neural networks. 
So we know the experience of success in our unconscious and our conscious before we even start the journey. So that's where we begin. And and the last piece of that, or, or two pieces, I guess, one is write the story in your language. So not only English, Spanish, et cetera, but maybe your language is dance. Maybe your language is music. Mm. Write the story in your language. The second uh, piece is you're creating the future, not predicting it. And you can always edit the story. It's yours. So don't be afraid to put it down. Once you've got that in place, now it becomes an, an iterative process of preparing and planning because we only plan for what's in our consciousness. And so there are several things that we do need to plan for that we don't think about all the time. We all have anchors in our lives, those things that provide us a sense of safety, security, feeling like we're in control. I call them anchors because most of the time they're below the surface. They're just how we do things, just how we feel about things. But when we're about to make a big change, we need to lift them up and look at them because some of them are going to hold us back. Mm-hmm. Some of them may propel us forward. Some of us, then we may need to adjust our relationships to. Going back to that story, my client and her husband had to adjust their relationships to their children and grandchildren. So as we look at these different things and, you know, what don't you want to happen on the journey? We typically don't think about that, but lift that up. And as you, we begin to identify these things in the prepare phase, we can begin to plan for them. And planning and, and executing is an iterative process. In the old change management jargon, it's not the waterfall plan. You know, at month six, I'm going to do this. At month seven, I'm going to do that. You know, a week from Monday, I'm going to do something else. It really is an ongoing process of adjusting and really keeping your eye on the prize as you move along. So in terms of organizations and trying to tie all this, the people factor together and what you just described, which was a great example of how people need to adjust, you know, perception. I'm going to call it perception, how they perceive things. I know it goes a lot deeper than perception. When when one is planning in a business for that organizational change, how do they make plans for the people and these thought processes? Because clearly there's a vision at the end you know, what we want this company to look like. The only way to get it there is through the people. So how do they prep the people for this vision and kind of keep everybody sane without jumping off the boat? A few things are are important there, Denise. First of all, inclusion, bringing people in early in the process. The second piece is understanding who are your real leaders in the organization. They're not necessarily the people with the titles. Who has the influence? So it may be that purchasing agent, or it may be the administrative assistant to an executive vice president. Those are the people that you want engaged early on because they're going to be influencing the broader workforce to be with the change and move through the change or to resist. That makes sense. What are some ways that as leaders of a company, you can get these people engaged in in the process? I mean, because for some, I know me as a business owner, it's always a question of when should I release this information? How much transparency and when for that? So you identify the influencers by asking two questions. And this comes from a change practitioner in Australia named Brendan Baker. For years, I used organizational network analysis, which is both an expensive and complex data analysis process. Brendan asks two questions. 
if you could work with any three people in this company on any project you wanted, who would you want on your team? I'm identifying the hard workers. I'm identifying the innovators. I'm identifying people who want to engage with change. Second question, when you want to know what's really going on, who do you talk to? I would say it's the person who has the ear of the owner. Could be, could be. (laughs) In smaller companies, that is often the case. In larger companies, it could be anywhere. They could not not necessarily in in HR. (laughs) Where? Well, I mentioned purchasing clerk. Um, Uh, Actually, in doing an an organizational network analysis of a 100-employee company, a purchasing clerk was the most influential. How interesting. I would not have thought that. Very often, I know I, I worked in a nonprofit years ago where it was the executive assistant to the former executive director. Mm, that makes sense. She had been there. She basically, what she said to me one day is, he never made a decision without consulting me, even where to go to lunch. Now, nobody asked me questions anymore. She was not a happy camper and she talked to a lot of people. She had a lot of influence. The other thing you mentioned in, in your question was about transparency. Mm-hmm. And transparency actually fits into a model of trust that I use, which is from the work of Judith Glasser, who did decades of research around the neuroscience of conversation. And the acronym for trust that she uses or, or used, I don't know, she's passed away, is TRUST. The first T is transparency. If I don't know what's going on, I'm going to figure it out. And I may be totally off base. So yes, there is an early point before decisions are made where you may need to be in a box, if you will. But as soon as I get a sense that Denise is making big changes around me, if I'm not hearing something from Denise, I'm going to get nervous and I'm going to fill in the blanks. And if I'm a really good, skilled employee who's also very capable of making change, I'm going to be the first one out the door. Mm-hmm. So the other piece of transparency, and I'll walk very quickly through the rest of the model, is being transparent about what you need from the other. That's a piece that we often miss. But creating explicitness in the relationship, R is relationship, and that's seeing the world through the other's eyes. That's relating not to Denise, the CEO, but relating to Denise as a person. You is understanding. That's the understanding that comes from deep listening. S is shared success that is not all agreeing on the words so we can all go off in our own directions with our own meanings. It's really having those tough conversations to come to a shared meaning of what we're looking to accomplish here. And the final T is telling the tough truths with caring and candor. I love that model. That's That makes so much sense. How do you apply this? Are you working with companies mostly now or individuals? I'm working mostly at this point with individuals, with leaders inside of companies. Gotcha. Okay. So you're working with the high level people that we often you know, talk, speak to in our podcast. So that's great. So tell me how you apply some of these principles in your, your coaching practice with them. Well, let's stay with the trust model for a moment. If they are struggling in some way with either their coworkers, their peers, their superiors, or people on their team. I may walk through the model without even saying this is about trust. Mm. Help me understand how you build relationships. Well, when I go to one of our locations, I always introduce myself as the vice president for so-and-so. Well, I'm building that positional relationship 
not that personal relationship. Mm-hmm. When I go to one of our offsite locations, I always introduce myself as John. Some people realize or recognize my name or ask me what I do, and then I'll tell them I'm the vice president for so-and-so. Very different way of building relationships. So I literally walk people through each aspect of the acronym and ask them what their current behaviors are. And then we can identify where we need to work to strengthen their ability to build trust. That's a great example. That is a great example. So with companies and and the leaders within the companies, of course, because they're the ones making it happen. Where do you find they, you know, you describe the fault, the, the trust model, where do you find they're faulting the most, meaning having the most issues? It really depends. I think a lot of what has come out of COVID, especially with leaders who are calling people back to the office, is in the relationship. Because from an individual perspective, and I really work diligently not to say employee, but use the term people when it's appropriate. But at an individual perspective, what I often hear is they've trusted me to do my job for over two years. Why don't they trust me anymore? Hmm. I I had a conversation not too long ago with Chris DeSantis, and Chris is the author of the book, Why I Find You Irritating, which is about intergenerational conflict in the workplace. And I said to him, you know, what I am most often hearing in terms of leaders who want people back in the office, part-time or full-time, is that's how we build our culture. That's how we build relationships. That's how we integrate new employees into the company. And he said, and that's how we used to do it. But if you ask your younger employees, they have built relationships with people around the world that will last a lifetime and with people they haven't and will never meet. So not understanding that different people see the world differently, Mm. that those intergenerational differences are real, although, again, making the mistake of thinking every millennial fits the stereotype of millennials, for example, getting to know the people. One of the things I encourage hire anyone who is hiring somebody to do is find out, again, what feeds that person's passion? What's What gets them excited about getting up and coming to work in the morning? If you can align that with what you need, you've addressed quality of work. You've addressed engagement. You've addressed retention because, they're yes, they're giving you what you need, and that experience is giving them what they need. I had one leader I was coaching, and I asked him that question. And then I said, and what about the people on your team? He said, I don't know. Maybe I should go ask them. He came back the next session. He said, I almost lost my best employee. Hmm. I had just moved him to head up our customer service. And when I asked him what gets him up and excited to come to work in the morning, he said, I can tell you what doesn't. I hate people. (laughs) Not the role for him. (laughs) Put me in a closet with a spreadsheet and I'll be happy all day. Mm. So for me, I think one of the, back to your question, the, the challenges that comes up in many different forms, but comes Not up. Understanding what motivates. Is, is building those relationships. Yeah. How incredible. Well, it sounds like you've done a, a lot of fascinating work. Tell me a little bit about the book that'll be coming out. So Enlightened Leadership is really based on the changing workforce, the changing work environment. I am predicting that we are on the cusp of a change as big as the start of the Industrial Revolution in terms of being able to work anywhere at any time, giving the company what it needs 
the people in the company what they need and the customers what they need. I think COVID was a catalyst for this. I think the whole role that AI is going to be playing in the future of work is un- totally beyond our imaginations at this point. And, and so enlightened leadership is really highlighting what some of these changes are and how we as leaders need to show up differently in order to successfully lead our teams and our organizations into the future. I agree. I, I recently did a, a solo podcast that talked about the chat GPT and, and AI feature functions and how it's changing the face of work and how people are using them. And it's incredible. I mean, it's actually, some of it's actually being used for coding, which I never thought would, re, you know, it's very technical based, even with troubleshooting coding. So it, it completely flabbergasted me, to be perfectly honest with you. I was really surprised at the applications that people were able to come up with for for this new technology. So it'll be exciting to see exactly how it develops in the future. Yeah, I was attended a webinar on AI and coaching uh, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, one of the things that we're talking about is AI as a virtual assistant to the coach. So listening to the conversation, suggesting powerful questions, observing changes in body language that the coach might not have caught and so forth. How powerful. And that's, you know, we're, we're talking about uh, kindergarten for artificial intelligence at this point. And where does it go from there? Absolutely. Exciting future there. So, Brian, how can our listeners find you after the show? So the best place to reach me is at Brian, that's B-R-I-A-N, at transforminglives.coach, or you can go to my website if you want to learn more about me or find me on LinkedIn. And happy to have a conversation with anyone about any of this. Perfect. And we'll make sure the email that you just shared, as well as your website link is in the show notes. So it's easy for people to find you. Brian, you've been an excellent guest today. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, you're welcome. I really, as you can tell, I'm passionate about all of the stuff we talked about. Absolutely. Thank you for joining me for today's Nurture Small Business podcast, where the focus is on business growth through technology, leadership, and people strategies. Do you have an idea for a podcast or feedback you'd like to share with me? Send me a note through my website at dcavirtual.com slash contact.